Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I am home. That is right, home. I'm very excited to be home. I'm very excited to check on all my gold bullion, which is exactly where I left it. Um, and um uh, and I'm very excited to get back into the swing of things. And so to, to help me uh, decompress and, and get back into normal inside the beltway punditry mode, I have one of, uh, one of my favorite pundits and also one of my favorite eggheads. Um, he's also a colleague of mine who happens to be dead to me because he's left, our sh- left the, the good shop to go run some other cheesy shop down the hall um and i don't even know what his actual title now and i don't know if he's going to keep the keep the old title or give himself some grand new fancy uh you know you know uh mobutu seste seiko social studies kind of title but uh regardless we have uh fan favorite matt Continetti back on the remit matt great to see you thanks jonah it's great to be here uh, my new title is Director of Domestic Policy Studies at uh-huh. the American Enterprise Institute. So you can just refer to me as director. <laughs> yeah, that, that's going to happen. <laughs> um, it's totally going to happen. Um, uh, how's, how's, uh, how's absolute power treating you? Does the gauntlet fit? Do you like it? The, the, the gems come loose? Well, I've been snapping my fingers, but some of the people that I'd like to disappear have not. So I, I think I need to take it, the gauntlet back to the shop and work out the kinks fair enough fair enough um and so like i can now ask you this because like i could never get a completely straight answer out of streeter um what does your shop do oh we do everything we do Uh it all that's i think this is the problem when you say you do everything and you do it all it defines easy definition it does but you know ai is a, a legacy institution it's been around for a long time And um, the organization of AI internally is probably of interest to a very small uh, elite cadre of folks. But we have four research divisions at AI. Uh, One is economics, which is kind of the bread and butter. That's the reason the Institute was created. Then another is foreign policy, uh, which we were well known for in the 90s and uh, the noughties. Um, Then there's Yuval Levin's group, the newest group, which is called social, cultural, and constitutional studies, tends to look at broader questions involving the constitutional order, liberal education, humane letters. And then there's domestic policy, which includes education policy. It includes our center for opportunity and social mobility, which is poverty studies, the family, 
welfare. Um, it includes our science, energy, and technology scholars. It includes our housing center, which studies mortgage rates and housing affordability. So it, I like to think that, you know, we're kind of the cradle to grave here in the domestic policy. You're born, you're born into families. We're going to see how you can rise in society. We're going to work on getting you the best education. Uh, we're going to work on getting you affordable housing, uh, cheap energy. And then if you develop any mental problems, we have uh, Dr. Sally Sattel here as well on staff and she will treat you. So we can, we have or addiction full, issues just or addiction. Yeah. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It, 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 the full suite of, uh, services we can offer here at domestic policy. And my job is kind of to herd cats, to solve problems as they arise, a look out for new talent that we can bring to AEI. Uh, and I also do my own work, you know, on politics and history and conservatism. Um, all right. All right. I, you know, I, um, now I can put it in my, my monthly scholarly report that I helped you explain what the hell you do and, um, yes, we, we can move on. All right. So, um, we should probably talk. We got to talk about the government shutdown, House GOP caucus thing. But let's put dessert first. I mentioned gold bullion. Um, uh, the Robert Menendez story. Um, I'm sorry, Bob Menendez, right? We go on Bob. Um, Senator Menendez to you. I guess. Yeah. Not for long. <laughs> um, and uh, um, so, first of all, what is your general take on it? But also, like, do you think but for uh donald trump's and but for the climate created by the ken paxton story and the donald trump story democrats would be rallying more around menendez or do you think the democrats have, have have really embraced the high road on purely sincere terms here well i mean so far we have a handful of democratic senators who have called for menendez's resignation um i think some of the more important democrats have been kind of silent uh, trying to figure things out. Uh, so I'm not quite sure I'd be real. I mean, the governor of the state called for him to get out, right? Which right. Which is not an unimportant I, thing. I mean, last I checked, Schumer's been silent, though. So, yeah. And he's in his, and Schumer's the immediate superior. Um, so I, maybe I'm less willing to say that the Democrats have taken the high road here. I think it's presented Democrats with similar challenges that we're facing across the spectrum uh, related to just the um, very low quality of elected officials we have in the United States of America. And it's funny, too, because the Menendez scandal is uh, happening just as Chuck Schumer is taking heat from within his own caucus because of his lowering of standards of dress and comportment for the senators while leaving them in place for everybody else who goes on the Senate floor. So uh, I think this is a mess for the Democrats. Uh, Menendez is as you know, a long history of kind of playing fast and loose with the law, you know, but he's also been let off in the past. Uh, and so it's not irrational for him to think that he could get off this time. Uh, whether he could get reelected is a separate question. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I don't know. It seems to me that the messaging from Democrats is more maybe not the highest road. Right. But like. um the clamor that the press creates after one of these things of should he resign, there seems to be a new democratic voice every day saying yes, which is something, right? I mean, it's not, it's not the low road. I take your point. It's not necessarily the highest road, but it's not like Chuck Schumer could kick him out of the Senate to begin with. Um, and, um, 
I do think I probably phrased it wrong and that the other leg of the stool here is that if it wasn't a seat that was obviously still going to stay in the Democrats column, would they be saying these things, right? If, if Joe Manchin was found with gold bullion in his house, I could see AOC saying he should resign because she has that, you know, was part of the purity caucus, but like, I'm not sure you would see as many Democrats saying he's, he's got to go. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, in some ways, Senator Menendez can say he's another victim of the Biden inflation because he's putting his cash in the mattresses right. and investing in gold as a hedge against this inflationary economy that Joe Biden has created. So I'm yeah, surprised I, there isn't more sympathy for him out there. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that William Devane isn't coming out and saying <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what Menendez can do if he leaves the Senate. Is he can do some of the buy gold ads on Fox. That would be awesome. Um, no, I mean, like, the thing I like about the gold thing is, uh, other than the fact that it is a reliable, uh, safe haven for value for, for millennia. <laughs> um, but is that it is a, uh, it's like just short of uh, German bearer bonds from the Nakatomi <laughs> Tower, right? I mean, it's like, it is so obviously bribe money, you know, <laughs> like it, it might as well be stamped Egyptian bribe in gold on the thing because it's not, it's, it, it, it's, it's a gift of Egyptian gold, it, Egyptian ingots, right? And so it's, you can't say, um, like, he, like he's trying to do with the cash, you know, the, oh, this came out of my personal savings account over years. It's just like, it might as well just say, you know, uh, sort of like that full faith and credit thing. It should say, this uh, commodity shall be used only for the purposes of political bribery, like embossed on the bars. And I just think that's awesome. Yeah, there's definitely a movie plot element to this scandal. Though it strikes me as we're talking about uh, calls for him to resign. If you compare this situation to the Al Franken situation from a few years back, there the calls did really build. And of course, Franken left. Um, it seems to me that if this scandal involves one of the Democratic coalition's uh, sensitive issues, like sex or race, Menendez would almost certainly be out very quickly. But since it involves something pedestrian <laughs> in political terms, like money, uh, I think he uh, has a, a longer runway. Um, all right. So let's start with the, the I'm sick of hearing about all these exit questions, these lightning round exit questions at the <laughs> end of conversations. Let's have an enter question. Will there be a will there be a shutdown this week? I think so. If you look at um, McCarthy's strategy since he ascended to the speakership earlier this year. Side note, it's hard to imagine it was only this year that he was elected speaker. It feels like forever. Yeah. But since then, since that time, since January, after that marathon process that led to him finally being elected speaker, he's lived by the principle that I've called concede to lead. <laughs> so he's tried to give everybody exactly what they want so as to allow him to stay in his job. and. Last week was very tough for the speaker. He was buffeted on all sides. He eventually settled on this idea that he'll just let Matt Gates do what he wants. And that's what they're going to start doing uh, today, uh, Tuesday, September 26th, as we have this conversation. They're going to start adopting the Matt Gates strategy. 
it will lead to nowhere because right. there's just no way that these bills that Matt Gates wants passed will become law. And I think McCarthy thinks that once it leads to nowhere, he can then say, look, I tried it. Uh, I tried your strategy. Let's move to a continuing resolution to buy us more time. The problem there, though, is uh, they, the hard right, the Freedom Caucus, the Matt Gates of the world might not agree. Uh, and so that would give us the shutdown at the end of this week. So I, mean, I just wrote my LA Times column about this, and I have this um, abiding theory. Uh, I'm not alone in this. Greg, uh, uh, Abe Greenwald, uh, your colleague from the Commentary Podcast. My dear colleague. Uh, your, your partner in silence um, <laughs> is, uh, um, is, is written about this as well. The... the part of the seems to me the part of the GOP doom loop, even if it's not true of individuals, the collective action sort of problem, the 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 default cultural dialectic, as it were, um, is to militate towards losing, right? Because when you in politics, as you know, it, the way it works in 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 democratic legislative politics is. Wins are always some form of compromise unless you have some kind of crazy supermajority. And even then, they're compromises within your coalition, maybe not with the other party, right? So, um, but when you've convinced large segments of the animal spirits, the influencers, uh, uh, the commanding heights of the culture of the right, that we are living in a oppressive uh tyrannical under a regime you know the biden regime or the establishment or the deep state or the system or whatever that is inherently and existentially opposed to us and is oppressing us at every turn if and that that's why we can't win if you actually chalk up anything like a win it's proof that you've capitulated it's proof that you have either you didn't ask for enough or you got rolled or um that you've been co-opted. And so the only way to demonstrate actual purity, actual commitment to principles is to lose, right? It's very sort of 19th century German opera, right? <laughs> In that it's, it's like you have to be this kind of Byronic hero who fails to prove that you are actually a hero because a hero who wins is one who's actually sold themselves out to the regime. And that when you have that kind of logic, it doesn't, Surprise! It shouldn't surprise you that like the House Freedom Caucus wanted to claw back the debt ceiling agreement from earlier in the year um, because it was an actual win for McCarthy. Very modest win in pure terms, but big political win because it, you know, proved the Republicans can govern and all that kind of stuff. And that's the last messaging that the firebrands want to have out there. And so it just seems to me that like that, at least with a four vote majority, <laughs> It is impossible for McCarthy to get an escape velocity out of that cycle unless he uses Democratic votes to get some things done, which is itself a suicidal gesture. I mean, am I missing something important here? Well, there's a lot going on. I'll start with your last point. I think that if he eventually were to turn to Democratic votes to fund the government, there, that would draw forth a recall petition. Um, uh, Matt Gates is threatened as much, and McCarthy has called the bluff, or at least pretends to call the bluff, that he's willing to stake his claim. 
and protect his job as speaker. It, it's unclear whether McCarthy can be replaced. You know, as you said, it's a very narrow majority in the House. There are about 20 to 30 Republicans who are of the no compromise mentality. But the rest of the Republicans know that Republicans never win shutdown fights. They may. That they cause. That they cause. Well, they, they're the ones who cause most of them. Right. But there was, <laughs> there was a brief one that Schumer caused and it didn't work for Democrats, right? Right. A few years ago. Yeah. The, the problem is, is that Democrats at least sound like they don't want to have a shutdown while Republicans continually, they always find the voice gets on TV that says, oh, the government's going to shut down. No one's going to notice. And it's like, no, every single time people notice and they don't like it. Well, the, the right. The Democrats are the party of government. They gain nothing by shutting down the government. That's their right. whole reason to exist. Republicans who traditionally have not been the party of government don't really mind shutting down the government, but are often blamed and they have to go through a bunch of news cycles of very hostile coverage. And, you know, often they survive another day. Right. Uh, but it's not pretty while it lasts. And there are a lot of members in the Republican conference who would rather not deal with these headlines since they know in the end they're going to have to fund the government anyway. McCarthy thinks his job is secure, I believe, because there's no real alternative to him. The Republican conference is not going to elect Matt Gates speaker. It's not even clear that they'd elect Jim Jordan speaker. Not clear that Jim Jordan of Ohio even wants the job. So mm -hmm. there's that. On the mentality that gets us to this place, I think there's something to it. One is that there are a bunch of freshmen and some of those freshmen want a shutdown. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, you're called up to the big leagues and you want to swing for the fences. Right. That's the mentality of a lot of new Republicans. They haven't had a shutdown yet and they want one because they want to be able to say, hey, we stood our ground. Right. At least to my second point. The most important thing to do in Republican politics today is to show that you're fighting. You got to fight, 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 fight. The way that you win credit among Republican voters is by fighting. If you receive good coverage or neutral coverage from the press, most Republican voters don't think you're doing your job. The only way they think you're doing your job is if the press is attacking you for being too polarizing or for fighting. And so that's the mentality that drives him to the position such as this. And then it's, I think that there's psychology of losing is, is plays a part because clearly a lot of the new right or the MAGA movement is fine with losing. <laughs> They're getting ready to renominate Kerry Lake in Arizona, for example. Mm -hmm. But beyond that is this sense of apocalypticism that essentially America is done for. So we can no longer afford to play by the rules. You say you want to fund the government. Well, fooey, because we have a $2 trillion deficit. We have $33 trillion of debt. If, if we have to sink the ship in order to prove our point that we have to build a new one, we're fine with doing that. And I think that's motivating a lot of these Republicans as well, a view that the system as it's existed is completely def uh, defunct. And so in order to build the new system, we have to take radical stances. And this is what McCarthy has to deal with. 
And I don't see how he can get out of it without some sort of shutdown in the coming weeks. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, of what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let's start segueing to uh meteor fair and this is i will i will i will i will lay aside my quibbles with your disagreement with my spot-on analysis so that we can move into uh 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 deep to deeper waters so uh there's been this little debate on the right lately um um very collegial because you don't debate the people who are not collegial anymore because they're friggin jackasses and so it's really just among friends um but um our friends at national review had an editorial there was some internal dissent on it uh charlie cook on the podcast agreed with my former amanuensis jack butler that the editorial was wrong not globally but in one regard which is the way the um the way nr that NR editorial, well, two regards, let's put it this way. Um, NR editorial was all about the argument about Mike Pence's populism speech. And I think you and I, well, I'll be curious what you thought of Mike Pence's populism speech generally, but I think that 
you would at least agree that Pence opened himself up to legitimate criticism for treating populism like it was a distinct ideological program rather than an approach to politics. And queuing off of that, the NR editorial said that um, there was nothing inherently populist about what Trump did, particularly on, on January 6th. It all had to do with Trump himself and not populism. And hey, populism's pretty great because Republican presidents have always used a little populism, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I agree that Republican presidents have always had a little populism to them. Um, and so have every Democrat, right? But it's always been, you know, I'm a big poison is determined by the dose guy. They've always kept it in check and channeled it towards productive ends. But I think where I disagree, where Jack disagreed, where I think Charlie disagreed, with the NR editorial was this claim that there was nothing inherently populist about what Trump did on January 6th, which I think is just an indefensibly false claim. It's not morally indefensibly, I just think it's analytically indefensible because by definition almost, when you encourage mobs, whether you incite them as a legal question, when you encourage mobs to storm a branch of government that is fulfilling a constitutional obligation to put to put popular pressure on it to change it. That is an inherently populist act. Um, and so I'm kind of curious, take your pick from this popper, populist potpourri about where, how you how you navigate these waters, because you've been friendlier to populism than I have in the past as well. So yeah. like maybe you're wrong on this point, too. <laughs> We should just stipulate at the outset of these conversations <laughs> that all of your analysis is correct. I'm, I'm simply here to offer, you know, my own take. But of course, yours is the, the right one. There we go. That's what I like to hear. Uh, maybe start with Pence's speech. I thought it was an interesting speech. I think he was using populism as a substitute for Trump and Trumpism. And so I, Mike Pence is a Reagan conservative. And as a Reagan conservative, he understands that populism and conservatism have worked together in the past and that there are ways in which that earlier Republican politicians have been able to synthesize to redirect populism toward productive ends. That's clearly not what happened with Trump during Trump's presidency and especially after the 2020 election. And there, in the months between the election and January 6th, indeed, even the month, the, the weeks after January 6th, there were those 14 days where Trump was still the president. Um, they, those days were a case study in what can go wrong with populism. And so my attitude has always been from my, my historical study that there are good elements to populism. There are good elements to being skeptical of elites and establishments. Even there are good elements to being skeptical of expertise because sometimes the experts have been addled by ideology. But populism also has downsides, real downsides. It can easily devolve into conspiratorial thinking. It can easily devolve into a, a, a lust for strongmen. And it can easily devolve into lawlessness and antinomianism, a sense that no law applies any longer. All of that manifested itself on January 6th. So I guess I would be more in the Butler camp to say that there was clearly populist characteristics at work on January 6th, uh, while also holding out the uh, hope uh, that there can be a constructive populism. I think we're a long way from it now. 
And I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done, a lot of uh, historical events that will take place before we get to the point where um, these two uh, movements, one an idiot, one a, a persuasion, if you want to take George Will's phrase, and the other kind of a, a built-in instinct in small D democratic politics uh, can, can work together productively again. So the reason why I, I found this to be a good place to segue is that I think, and look, I, look, I agree with you. It's obviously the case. And I, I wrote, I've written this many times is that, you know, I personally think populism tends to be the politics of sort of mass anger, but, but sometimes anger is justified. Right. I mean, so like marshalling popular passion towards a productive end is very close to what democracy is supposed to do. It's certainly what close that in certain circumstances, what leaders are supposed to do. But it's when populism sort of hits a certain degree of purity, right? When you, when you run out of baby powder, baby powder and the kilo is almost pure populism, then it's just the politics of rage for its own sake. Right. And, um, and rage for its own sake is never good. And, um, uh, it needs to be productively harnessed towards, you know, good ends. And, um, and so the, the reason why I chose that as a segue was that, um, it seems to me that this, as you put it, the only way to prove that you're doing your job is by fighting. Um, that's part of uh, populism blood poisoning, right? Or brain poisoning, right? That is if, if, if the only metric for doing your job is fighting rather than say winning, <laughs> right? Then like moving the ball down the field. I'm not sorry. I'm not necessarily talking about scoring touchdowns or grand slams every time. I'm just talking about advancing the ball, right? And to mixing a couple metaphors in there, but, um, then you're going to reward people for picking stupid fights, right? Matt Gates is popular. He may run for governor in Florida, not because he's picking constructive fights and making progress, but because he's making, picking performatively opportunistic theatrical fights that get him a lot of attention. And the voters confuse that for doing the job. And that seems to me to be the problem that you get when you internalize populism as a good in and of itself, rather than a tool that can be used for good ends. But, you know, populism has to, the only defense of populism can ever be is means, not ends. And once you make populism an end, you've overturned the whole point of our constitutional order and our Republican form of government. Right, because there are no ends intrinsic to populism. Like radicalism, right? There's no end thing to it. Yeah. The, whatever the people say, you know, that, well, the, you need some principle to inform that. It has to be conservative principle. And I think what you're saying highlights the importance of leadership in these debates. I just contrast what Gates is up to or what Donald Trump is up to with what Glenn Youngkin is up to mm -hmm. or Brian Kemp or, or even Ron DeSantis or Kim Reynolds in Iowa. Right. There are ways in which Republican politicians have harnessed this parental revolt against the schools 
in the public schools, the curriculum, the school boards in particular, to productive ends, mainly because they've, they've harnessed that energy to a conservative policy agenda, educational choice. And we've had an explosion of school choice programs throughout the country just in the past year. It's been an amazing moment for educational choice. And I think a lot of work is being done on the schools. And we have scholars at AEI who are working on this and who have, have been writing about it and analyzing it. That, I think, is taking populist sentiment, which was the outrage parents felt after COVID at what was going on in the school system, and using it to inform public policy. Elsewhere, you see figures taking populism really as a way to advance themselves. And you think about Matt Gates here in particular. You hit it a bullseye when you said he's thinking of running for governor of Florida. All of his actions need to be understood through that frame. He doesn't care about the House majority. He doesn't care about his colleagues. He doesn't care what happens to the American government or the federal fisc. He cares about Matt Gates and what will get him the nomination to be governor of Florida in 2026. And that is where the incentives are completely misaligned. Trump, as we know, I mean, the only thing Trump really cares about is himself. <laughs> and everything is kind of a function of what he thinks will get him through the next five minutes. Um, it's the same thing. Uh, Trump knows that the best way out of all of his legal jams is to win the Republican nomination again and to win the presidency again. And so everything has to be filtered through that lens of self-interest when we look at these leaders. If you have a different type of leader, you might get a different type of populism. And I think the real damage of Trump was that he became the leader of the Republican Party when he was nominated in 2016. Then he was entrenched as the leader when he became president in 2016. And he's not going anywhere. So he continues to exercise this power over the Republican Party and the conservative movement that has turned populism uh, 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 in a very unhealthy way. So obviously this is a delicate issue given now that, first of all, you're a suit at AI. Um, but, uh, um, um, but also just that we're both AI guys and the spirit of collegiality that once, once marked pretty much all this, the right of center think tanks has kind of gone by the wayside in part because the heritage foundation has sort of pretty explicitly decided that it is a populist think tank rather than a conservative think tank, at least on a bunch of the issues of the day. And um, we don't have to focus on that, but I didn't, it's sort of impossible for me to make this larger point without making, acknowledging that, and that I have grave and profound uh, disagreements with what Heritage has, has been doing for a while now. But um, it seems to me that a lot of institutions on the right, AI has been, it's not the only one, uh, but it's been more immune than any other I can think of at the moment. Uh, maybe Hoover, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, but of the sort of right of center institutions, the, the fighting is its own reward school, right? The sort of the populism uh, 
the, 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 the market can't be wrong, right? The, the customers is always right, particularly when there's a large number of them. Um, that spirit seems to have suffused large chunks of the institutional right in, in the country. And, um, and what is disturbing or scary about that, and, and since you're the sort of go-to guy now on this stuff, um, is that the nice thing about the election system is that you lose a couple of elections and everything resets, right? Losing does focus the mind. I mean, one of the reasons why we're stuck in this doom loop with Trump is because Trump convinced people he didn't lose. And so you don't trigger the normal self-reflection you get from defeat. Um, but it seems to me that the, the problem with institutions is that there's a much longer lag time. You put people in who are committed to this idea that the small donor base, such as it is, um, is the real customer and the customer is always right. That can have distorting in impacts on conserva intellectual conservatism for a whole generation. And I'm just wondering, is this a concern you share? Do you think that with Trump goes, a lot of that stuff goes with it? Um, I, could, I could see that argument possibly being true. Um, what do you think about it? I do think that there are, is a variety of institutions that are being set up or altered to prepare for a second Trump term. And you look at these groups and they're either trying to train young people to go into a second Trump administration. They're trying to identify more experienced mid-level people to go into a second Trump administration. They're trying to compensate for what the new right believes was the central weakness of the Trump presidency, which was its, its lack of capable talent. They don't really address the underlying cause of that lack, which is Trump. <laughs> and so until you remove Trump from that equation, you're probably always going to run up against a ceiling of the talent you'll be able to attract. However, you see again and again, these institutions uh, manifest themselves. Some are have changed um, in order to accommodate Trump. It would be ironic if all of this work that's being done, all this money that's being spent, ends up kind of futile because something happens leading to Nikki Haley winning the Republican nomination, right? I'm sure Nikki uh, Haley would listen to these groups, but uh, you know, she's not friends with them. That's for sure. And they're not friends with her, which is the yeah, exactly yeah. they don't really like her. And she does recall a different type of American. Right. And am I saying she's going to win the nomination? No, not not really. But, you know, she's moving up and mm -hmm. you can see scenarios in which she could conceivably get it. So it, that would just be funny. You're like you, you're whenever you try to reverse engineer an ideology out of something that had no clear principles, you run the risk of having everything overturned when right. something new comes along. And I, I do think that's a danger that a lot of the institutions on the right are experiencing. I, I wonder, though, too, I mean, you don't just change an institution willy nilly. Uh, I, some of them are responding to a change in the nature of the Republican electorate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the deeper question, which is, you know, the Republican coalition, even the conservative coalition of 2023 is a far different creature than it was a decade ago. 
And that's not just because of the ideas. That's because of the actual people who are now part of it. And whereas even a decade ago, when the Republican Party nominated Mitt Romney, and you, there are surveys like Bill McInturf that, who, who have done polls of this and shown that in 2012, the GOP was basically split between white voters with college degrees and white voters without college degrees. Well, by 2022, McInturf shows it's now like, uh, you know, three to two ratio, mm-hmm. non-college to college. The party is more and more the party of white voters without college degrees. That is a long time, long time trend that Trump accelerated. And when you have this change in the people who make up your movement or your party, you're going to see a different emphasis, a different agenda. And that will leave some of us, the conservatives, uh, kind of in the rear. Or an, a, a remnant of some kind. Uh, or one might say a remnant. <laughs> yeah. But it is the reality. And I see it every day. I mean, if you think about the fact that the frontrunner for the Republican nomination spent last week ticking off the pro-life groups mm-hmm. and will spend this week going to Michigan in order to demonstrate some form of solidarity with the striking auto workers, that's a remarkable change. Yeah. in the Republican Party than even six years ago when uh, Donald Trump felt kind of constrained by the coalition he was inheriting. He doesn't feel constrained anymore. Yeah, no, I, mean, I, I find the, the pro-life stuff, it's funny. I had, so Friday before last, I wrote a G-file on populism and my disagreement with NR and all that. And, um, and I, Picked a little bit of a fight with my friend Michael Brennan Doherty for his uh, back of the hand to Mitt Romney, which I just thought was wrong, and um, and his defense of J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley and these guys, and um, and I think there's a lot of analytical merit to what Phil Klein and 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 MBD said about. Romney on the question of abortion. Romney was on a bit of a journey with abortion. Um, and there's no denying that as, as, uh, as Nick Cotogio at the dispatch put it, um, churlish, but not exactly wrong. And, um, but what I did, what I took exception to was, you know, the way I see Romney, George HW Bush, who played his own sort of games of footsie on a lot of social and cultural issues is that these were basically civic-minded, decent, upstanding men who felt they had to do grubby things in the world of grubby politics in order to do public service. And what Donald Trump and a lot of his imitators are is they're grubby people who have to occasionally do good things in order to justify their their, their, their self-aggrandizement. Right. And like, so Trump put good justices on the Supreme Court. He doesn't give a rat's ass about the Supreme Court. And he's pissed at it because it wasn't personally loyal to him. Like he was some South America, you know, uh, South American, you know, autocrat. Um, But the good things that he did, the things that you and I would say, yeah, but there were some good things in the Trump administration. Those were the price he had to pay to be able to be the bad man that he is as much as he wants to be. And 
it seems to me that that's the, and so anyway, I'd said, you know, you know, so defending Vance and these guys for, for flipping and becoming pro Trump misses that element. And I'm curious what will people, what Vance's defenders will say when Trump starts to sell out abortion. And then like three hours after I wrote the thing, Trump started to sell out abortion in earnest. Um, and I have to say, I have, I have a mixed feelings. I have some real sympathy for pro-lifers. You know, I've been around the pro-life movement my entire professional life, and I know how sincere a great many of them are. Um, and uh, on the flip side, it was so utterly predictable that once Trump won over personal loyalty over principles of the mass of the electorate, he was going to throw aside anything that he felt he needed to throw aside. And so there's this Aesopian flavor to it that I'm kind of like, see, I mean, it, 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 it conjures an unhealthy level of I told you so-ness in me. Um, and I'm just kind of curious, is there anything other than maybe guns left on the right that Trump could not explicitly um, denigrate? that could fracture this or is, 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 is this another example of how the, when the populism gets into the brain, the issues all take a back seat to just the idea of fighting for fighting's sake. I think that the Trump stuff on abortion is still motivated by a political calculation and it's the political calculation to get him back in the white house. Sure. So, so Trump since last year has seen correctly in my view that abortion could be a weakness for the republicans and he has been trying to distance himself from the pro-lifers in somewhat the same way that for example bill clinton tried to dissociate himself from the cultural left of his time and that has gone turbulently for trump because pro-life movement still very important part of the Republican coalition, the people who care deeply about this issue. And he had to, I think, do some damage control after his most recent comments. But he hasn't really wavered from his position, which is that he does not want, uh, uh, he does not want to be pinned down on whether there should be federal legislation restricting abortion. Um, and he doesn't think that any legislation should be without certain exemptions for uh, rape, incest, and life of the mother. So he's playing this game. But he also attacked the, the heartbeat bill in Florida, right? A terrible which, thing, he said. Yeah, A terrible thing. Yeah. Kind of blows up all the, the rigor of it all. Yeah, well, that suggests, too, that he doesn't think that the six-week ban the restrictions are uh, prudent. Um, now, it's an opportunistic thing because it just so happens that his closest rival, Ron DeSantis, is the guy who signed the six-week bill into law. But it also suggests that Trump, you know, had he, if he were be forced to actually come down on this issue, might be more like, say, Glenn Youngkin and want a 12 to 15-week restriction as opposed to the six-week. Regardless, I think it's still a little bit too early to see what the effect of Trump's position will be. Iowa is the first caucus state. Even though Trump is dominant nationally, dominant in state polls, in the Iowa poll, his dominance 
still leaves some room for concern on the part of the Trump campaign. That's why he spent some time in Iowa just last week. Iowa tends to be very socially conservative. Trump did not win Iowa in 2016. Ted Cruz did. And it's possible that Trump's rivals like DeSantis, like Mike Pence, could use the life issue to score an upset win in Iowa. So I think we have to reserve judgment about Trump's effect on the attitudes of the party at large on this issue until Iowa comes in. If, as seems likely, Trump marches to the nomination, then I think you're right. Trump really determines then the agenda of the Republican Party. Let's not forget that the last Republican platform was issued in 2016. In 2020, the RNC just issued a statement saying, see previous platform and whatever Trump wants. <laughs> and if Trump is the nominee in 2024, I expect him to do the same thing. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is, again, what, so we're going to, and we're going to get off populism in a second, but. You know, MBD says, well, rhetor- uh, uh, populism is simply a rhetorical style um, or, or something, a rhetorical approach to politics or something along those lines. And um, I, I think that's defensible looked at from one angle, but another angle, it, it misses something important because, you know, my favorite definition of rhetoric comes from this literary critic, Wayne Booth. I quote him all the time, and it's the art of probing what men believe they ought to believe. And um, there's very little of that component to populism, right? Other than, you know, and so when you say like, and I think you're absolutely right, you know, when the the official Republican Party position, certainly in 2020, was we're not going to lay out any principles because Trump may disagree with them. So we're just going to hold our fire on whatever we believe and just say, we'll be the broom behind Trump and we'll agree. Right. I mean, that's, that was the, 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 the gist of it. And this was the, this was the problem with like national, was it national affairs was the original journal of American affairs, the original Julian Kreintz thing. Yeah. American affairs, American affairs, journal of American greatness was the blog that became American. Affairs. That's right. That's right. Right. Um, and I, you know, at the time I remember, uh, I wrote this piece picking off, you know, Yuval celebrated the idea that they were 
launching this journal of ideas and this is a good idea. Let's help figure out what Trumpism is and blah, 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 blah. And I generally agreed with Yuval, but I predicted, and I very rarely go back and point to my predictions in part because so many of them were wrong, but I was right on this in that I just said, look, at some point, these guys are going to have to decide whether they're a journal of ideas trying to come up with a coherent thing or whether they are an organ dedicated to defending Donald Trump because he can't be both. Not just because politicians will always disappoint you, but because this politician in particular is completely unattached to any consistent ideological approach. And so any attempt to come up with a coherent ideological program around him has to either boil down to Trump is always right or make itself comfortable with the idea that it's going to disagree with Trump at some point. And they ran into that problem. Um, everybody, everybody who's tried to polish the turd, as it were, have run into this problem of eventually Trump says something they can't defend and they're forced to choose between saying Trump is always right. We, we saw this in small and microcosm. I don't know if you followed this. So Trump was in South Carolina this week and all of his MAGA bro friends on Twitter were all psyched and tumescent over the fact that he had bought a Glock at a gun show or a gun store. And, and then our friend Steve Gutowski pointed out, um, you know, I think that's pretty, I'm pretty sure that's illegal because you can't buy um, a firearm when you're under federal indictment. And all of a sudden, all the MAGA bros said that never happened. He never bought it. It's fake news. <laughs> um, you know, move along. You're making this up, even though they were the ones who said that he did it, you know, and that's sort of in microcosm, the problem that a big chunk of the right has gotten itself into. And um, I don't know that it's solvable until, you know, uh, he departs this mortal my, coil. My favorite example of this sort of cognitive dissonance involves Trump himself. If you remember the Brett Baer interview he did earlier this summer and Trump's policy is the death penalty for drug dealers. That's one of the policies mm -hmm. that, uh, he's outlined. And Brett Barra said, well, that lady that Kanye and Kim Kardashian wanted you to <laughs> release and that you pardoned, she would be, I think her name was Alice Johnson. Um, yeah. she, that means she would be on death row right now. And the look on Trump's face when Brett <laughs> said this to him was absolutely priceless. And of course, it's Trump. So, you, you know, he, it kind of, you see the wheels turning behind the the carapace yeah. and then he's like, well, that that's a separate issue. That's a separate issue. But there's so many things <laughs> like that, that you, know, you just have to completely recalibrate. But this is the work that the Republican Party has signed up for now. Uh, they mm -hmm. I think our friend Kristen Solis Anderson put it pretty well in The New York Times recently. She said, look, she talks to a lot of Republicans. She's a pollster. She does focus groups. Republicans like Trump. Republicans don't think Trump did anything wrong. Republicans think that if Trump did it something wrong, Joe Biden did it too. And they think Trump mm -hmm. will win. And this has put us in the situation we are currently in, where Trump is the far and away frontrunner for the Republican nomination, despite being an electoral liability for the Republican Party. If you simply go through the mm -hmm. elections since Trump won in 2016 and the GOP won a trifecta in 2016. None of them have gone well for Republicans, and all of those missteps can be attributed to Trump, whether it's 2018, losing the House, 2020, losing the White House, losing the House, and then 
Trump actively campaigning against the two <laughs> senators who could have maintained the Republican hold on the Senate and thus losing the Senate for Republicans. And then 2022, where scholars, including AI's own Phil Walk, have calculated this, that showed that a Trump endorsement in a primary setting worked out to about a five percentage point penalty in the general election, right? The one exception to these elections has been 2021, which went very well for Republicans. And that was the election where Trump was the least visible because we were still living in the aftermath of January 6th. Trump had just left office. And so Glenn Youngkin was able to somehow negotiate the Trump wing as well as the more traditional Republican wing and win a very good victory. And then Jack Chitterelli in New Jersey almost came from behind to win in New Jersey, Nassau County Republicans. The one bright spot in recent years has been the New York Republican Party, uh, where they've they've fielded a, a bunch of moderates on a lot of issues, except for the issues of crime and immigration. And they've done very well, but even that might be in danger in 2024. There's a great fear among those moderate Republican House members from New York that Trump at the top of the ticket would cause them to lose and thus Republicans to lose the House as well, which would be unusual. You know, it's interesting. The last time a House majority lost control in a presidential year was 1952. So even like in 1996, right, or 2012, when you have a Democratic president that's reelected, the Republicans have kept the House, right? Um, so if the Republicans were to lose the House again in 2024, that would kind of defy recent historical precedent. And I think the most likely explanation would be that the person at the top of the ticket was Donald Trump. All right. So uh, in our closing few minutes here, um, I want to switch gears again, go back to something. I think I, we talked about it considerable length the first time you were on here way back in the Pleistocene era. Um, I, before I left on my great migration, um, I had been working on this piece because I was so pissed off at some of the things that Vivek Ramaswamy said and that um, Heritage said that I figured since no one else is going to do it, I'm going to do my in defense of neoconservatism um, spiel. And, but I couldn't get it done because I started going down all these rabbit holes as, as, as I know, you know, that can happen. Um, and you start going back and reading the new criterion symposium on neoconservatism from 1980. And, you know, three days later <laughs> you haven't eaten, you know, and your, your, your beard is three times as long and that kind of thing. And then I had to leave. So I, I got to revisit it and see what shape it's in. But um, figure I'll just force you to talk about this for a second. Um, so uh, the head of the Heritage Foundation, um, Kevin Roberts, says he's a recovering neocon. Vivek Ramaswamy says he's the only non-neocon on the stage at, uh, in these debates. Um, every, anybody who wants to support Ukraine is ipso facto a neocon. Um, and uh, I think at the margins, you can find some, some anti-Semitism stuff in some of the way this is argued about, even in this moment. I mean, certainly in the past, anti-neocon stuff had a lot of anti-Semitism in it, depending on who you're talking about. 
um, in the specific debate and context. Um, but what is driving me among the things that is driving me crazy about all of this is the assumption that the historic position of the Republican party and of the conservative movement was of principled non-interventionism, if not isolationism, and that only neocons have ever been hawkish, assertive internationalist um, on foreign policy and military affairs, which is basically an erasure of the Republican Party and the conservative movement since 1945. And it is also, to me, an erasure of what neoconservatism originally was, which was not about foreign policy, but that's an argument for another time. Um, should I still care about this? Should it still make me angry? Um, does it bother you in the slightest? Because I know you, you, you carry similar receipts on this stuff the, as I do. Um, um, does, does it just, is it water off a duck for you when you hear Vivek say this kind of thing? Well, I think Mike Murphy put it well, which is that Vivek is the best advertisement for Excedrin <laughs> and that he's seen in a long time. So simply seeing Vivek makes me want to reach for uh, some type of pain relief in a glass of water. Neocon, I, I have somewhat become inured to it, Jonah, simply because it's just a synonym for hawk now. You're right to point out that the range of application of this derisive term is so much larger than it was even a few years ago. You know, neocon hawks were the people who were scapegoated for Iraq, despite, last I checked, the American public supported the invasion of Iraq. Did many Democrats, including the current president, supported the authorization of the use of force against Iraq. Um, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and Colin Powell, not neocons. Hate to break it to everybody. Uh, however, neocons became the scapegoat. All right. Well, in Iraq and in Afghanistan, American ground troops were deployed overseas. That was a high risk effort. Many Americans died. Right now in Ukraine, the American military is not directly engaged. What, what the supposed neocons are doing is simply re recapitulating the Reagan doctrine which was support for anti-communist guerrillas overseas. And what conservative supporters of assistance to Ukraine are saying is, let's carry that further to support the armed resistance against Putin's barbaric invasion of a sovereign country that wants to be aligned with Western civilization. Somehow that may, that's a neocon plot. Uh, I think it's remarkable because it, it's, it is what you say. It's a repudiation, not just of W policy, which we kind of saw with Trump. It's now a repudiation of Reagan policy. And if you get in the weeds, it's even a repudiation of Nixon policy. And Goldwater. I mean, and, you know, I mean, you can go all the way back, you know. Well, Goldwater, we'd be all in. You know, the golden, you know, yeah, 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 my yeah. guy Barry in, in 1964, he was ready to, <laughs> to storm the barricades, right? That was, that's why he lost. But Nixon, the Nixon doctrine was, we're simply going to give our allies the tools in order to defend themselves. Well, that's literally what we're doing in Ukraine. 
Ukraine is a democratic ally of the United States, and we are helping them survive this invasion. And we hope claw back the territory that was illegally taken from them beginning in 2014. The problem is the new, a lot of these new right folks, including Vivek and his epigonies, don't think of Ukraine as an ally. I don't see the West as a coherent unit. Don't actually think America is very good. And this is why one of the most illuminating exchanges of that first presidential debate last month among the Republicans was when Pence basically began singing from the Reagan hymnal and Vivek said, stop what you're saying. This is not morning in America. We are in a bad place right now. And that means everything you're used to has to go out the window. That's kind of the debate in the Republican Party. And unfortunately, for someone who believes as I do, the Viveks seem to be winning it. Yeah, which I would, I, I would again ascribe to the fact it's this Goddard Damerung result that you get from uh, excessive populism addiction. Right. I mean, like if you constantly tell people they should be full of rage, eventually you run out of legitimate reasons to make them angry and you have to sort of manufacture illegitimate or fake reasons to make them angry. And that gets you into the conspiratorialism that gets you into the catastrophization. And, you know, it's like I mean, you have little kids. Like when you have little, sometimes little kids can just be in a bad mood. And the last thing they want to hear is things aren't that bad. And they get angry at you for saying, look, this isn't that big a problem. You know, you'll, you know, you'll be friends with them at the cafeteria tomorrow or whatever. And they say, no, you don't understand. This really is the end of the world. And you're like, okay, well, explain it to me. And they can't explain it to you because their brains are kind of stuck in this I want to be angry and I don't want you talking me out of it kind of thing. And Vivek represents the, the, you know, the the intellectual, intellectual, such as uh, regret using this word, but the intellectualization of this mindset, right? As does a lot of our friends, former friends, former colleagues, whatever, in the sort of Claremont universe is that they want there to be a catastrophe. They want it to be a flight 93 election, because that justifies the kinds of arguments they enjoy making. And I'm all in favor of making flight 93 kind of arguments when I'm on flight 93. <laughs> but like barring that, it is really dangerous to tell people to give people permission to be existentially panicked and in full of rage about everybody and everything because you know, bad things happen when large numbers of people think in those ways. I mean, I guess I would say I do think there's a lot to be angry about right now. I, I think the inflation and the economy is a mess. I think that the border is a big crisis that has all these spillover effects in America's cities. I think that we've embraced an ethic of do what you want, carefree, uh, Morality, which has led to a lot of lawlessness in America's cities, a lack of decorum on the Senate floor uh, when you're starting allowing John Fetterman walking around with his shorts and his hoodie. Um, I think there's a lot to be angry about. I think that the schools are in a, in a rotten place. Um, and that's why I'm cheered by the ed reform that I was talking about earlier. M my response to 
the groups that you mentioned is that, okay, there's a lot to be angry about. There's a lot to be worried about. How are you going to fix it? Right. What are you doing about it? I, I don't disagree with you about that. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me that conservative principles, broadly understood, still are the way to address all these challenges. That in fact, in many of these situations I described, government continues to be the problem. And so let's try to restrain government, limit government to constitutional self-rule, apply the rule of law to every individual. That's how we can get out of it. Oh, by the way, let's demand more of, per, of persons. Let's stress individual agency and personal responsibility. Let's look at to competition and choice to increase our options, right? I, I think that conservative principles still offer the best way to address these problems. And that's the source of my disagreement. And then I think there's also the catastrophization, which you described too. I mean, that's out there, but what it's doing is it's essentially an argument for an emergency and thus a junking of all the rules, a junking of the constitutional rule of law that I think is still the best hope for the, for the United States and the world. And so I just keep saying to my friends on the right, we're here to defend the Declaration and the Constitution. Let's do it because it works. And we've even seen with some of the victories that the right has enjoyed from the Supreme Court and from lower courts in recent years, this still works. We don't have to give up on the system and we can still turn to the history of the conservative movement in America to help inform our answers to today's challenges. So that, that's, that's really where I depart company from um, the, the new right. Yeah, but um, the new rights, I mean, one of the, again, going back to where we were earlier, I agree with that entirely, right? I, I, it's, a, it's a bingo card thing for this podcast when I point out that like, whenever I make these arguments against populism, people will say, but Johnny, you don't understand people are really angry. And I was like, yeah, no, I get that they're angry and they have good reason to be angry about a bunch of stuff. When was the last time you made your best decisions when you were really, really angry, right? I mean, it's like recognizing the anger, anger, anger illuminates the problem, but it doesn't really illuminate the solution. But when you make anger a requisite for the solution, when you make it an ends rather than a means, that's when you get into all sorts of confusion about things. And, um, but part of the problem we've got now is that there are an enormous number of new institutions, new movements, new factions that have said, I, led by people who want to be leaders of a new thing rather than followers of an old thing, right? Rather than members of an old thing. And so whether it's the new sort of right-wing living constitutionalists um, or, uh, the new lovers of industrial policy or the sort of Holly faction, the pro union government interventionists, statists of the right. Um, it seems to me at this point that they're not going to fall back. They, they, they have too much invested in rejecting the language that you used of, uh, uh competition and choice, right? Like that assumes that the people can make their own decisions rather than having people in charge arranging institutions for the benefit of their constituencies and their their client base and 
I suspect that the rest of our lives, we're going to be having a lot of the arguments that we used to have as a left, right thing, as an intra right thing. Um, uh, because there's going to be such a lag time on these institutions being taken over by people who Trump gave a permission structure to abandon cons traditional conservative approaches to these. Yeah. And I think the, pers the historical perspective is helpful here because conservatives, the Buckleyites, um, the followers of Frederick von Hayek, Milton Friedman, even the followers of Harry Jaffa, they were in the wilderness for a long time. That was really the way that conservatives told their story for many years was it was an exodus story. It kind of began out on the margins, out in the wilderness. And I, I tell somewhat a similar story in, in my book. And would, I think we have to recognize that if you hold certain principles, you might end up in the wilderness again. That doesn't mean you shouldn't argue for them. Uh, that doesn't mean that you should just go with the flow. And it, in fact, it's, there's a lot of cynical people out there who have just gone with the flow. Um, but it does mean that it will be hard and you're going to have to uh, really try to see how your beliefs can be applied to the problems of our, of the current day. And I think, you know, there was some kind of entropy or laziness on the right prior to the rise of Trump. There was kind of a way to just, you know, uh, uh, fall back on cliches, but we can't afford that now. And I think that there is good work being done. It's just so uh, easily lost amidst this whirlwind that has descended on American politics. And I should, should say too, since we haven't mentioned him all that much. Uh, I've been talking about leadership. Biden is a cause of this as well. And the fact that Biden is such a bad president and debilitated in my view at this point um, has created an opening for the worst sorts of uh, responses to him. And if Biden were stronger, that we might actually force the right to be a little healthier. But because he's so weak, and so ineffective, the, the battle for the right is very live uh, because every faction thinks that it has a chance for total victory um, in, the, in the next year. No, I think that's a really good point. I mean, the, uh, and uh, Democrats, when I make this point, obviously get very angry at me when um, sort of the I had Tom Nichols on here. We kind of yeah. went back and forth about his, his faction of the anti-Trump, right. You know, like whether, you know, many rooms of the mansion of never Trumpism, you know, uh, I'm kind of camped on the lawn of that mansion. I'm not, I'm not yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, totally. But we got nowhere else to go. <laughs> and, um, um, and part of my argument with him where I think I, again, he did not persuade me very much about the merits of his, he didn't persuade me to want to join his approach to this, adopt his approach to these things. Um, but it just came to mind because if Biden had more of a Clintonian political gift, he would have peppered his presidency with all of these sister soldier type moments, right? That would have signaled to the base, you can't roll me. 
um, which would have been very good for Biden. It would also signal to the center and to the center right that there is room in the coalition. If you really hate what Trump is doing, you can park yourself and not be embarrassed among your conservative friends for parking yourself with me. And like the, 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 the way I began the conversation with Tom Nichols was I said, why are you guys such cheap dates? Because, you know, the, the, and I get, I get some of it, you know, it's like, they think totally legitimately and, and, and quite plausibly that Trump is an existential threat to democracy. Well, if Biden believes that, that should force him to make some compromises to seduce these people, to seduce the center and the right members of the right into his coalition. Instead, he thinks all of they think all of the burden should be on the individual voter to reach their conclusion without giving them any signals that they're welcome. Right. I mean, like you have to basically the message from Biden is you have to be perfectly comfortable in the party of Cory Bush and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Elon Omar. And you have to be perfectly comfortable with our rhetoric about all of these different things because Trump is so bad. And it seems to me real statesmanship would say, hey, look, Trump is this real problem. What's going on in the Republican Party is bad for the country. It's bad for democracy. Let's figure out a way to be more attractive to these people, to bring them in, because this is an opportunity. And he's either too myopic or too weak to do it. And I think that that is a profound failure. By all means, criticize people who are blasé about Trump. But for people who are concerned about Trump, give them a reason to join your coalition. And he's done none of that. And the converse is also true, right? I mean, I think the right uh, says, look, things are the, the left is so bad that you have to stomach Trump. So right, everyone exactly. is trying to offer the worst possible choices <laughs> to, to voters. And that just seems to be a recipe for disaster in American politics. Yeah. Yeah. All right, on that cheery note, uh, Matt Connelly, thank you so much for doing this. Congratulations on your new gig. Thank you. Um, uh, rule with, a, with an iron fist covered with a velvet glove. And I hope we'll have you back on uh, soon. Thank you, John. I hope so, too. Because we have to settle this neocon thing. We're going to have to do a whole... You and I will be like the last Japanese soldiers on the island of neoconservatism saying to the rest of the world, you have no idea what you're talking about. Um, but exactly. you know what? I'm happy to be there with you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay. So Matt Continetti has left the studio. Uh, thanks to him for coming on. Uh, thanks to you for indulging my, um, my effort to get the bends from the road out of my, um, system. I'm still a little, uh, still getting my sea legs as it were. Um, even though that's not the exactly apt metaphor. Um, going to have an interesting announcement that mildly interesting announcement tomorrow. Um, or on the next episode of The Remnant. Um, I will also be answering your questions about uh, van life uh, shortly. And um, thank you for all the road recommendations. We are keeping a file in the Goldberg family for um, future trips, uh, which we really want to do. And um, thank you for the concern about the animals. They're all well. And um, that's all I really got. So I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.